Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read through most of chapter 3, so it's important that you have your Bibles open, and we'll be spending time in a couple verses here in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Let's go ahead and read from verse 1 of chapter 1. Hear what Paul has to say to the church here in Ephesus and then to us today. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. For in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. For in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery of what was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. For when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places and this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him it's the word of the Lord let's pray father we are thankful for the access we have to you through Christ And now as we spend time this morning in a brief study and exploration of the deep, dark recesses of our hearts that are in hostility and rebellion still in our flesh against your will, would you help the truth and the grace of these words bring life and light to that darkness so that we can live not only together as a church for the sake of the gospel and the community, but ultimately for your glory throughout the world. We pray and ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to work, as I said, briefly through these few chapters, and I want to do that briefly because it's my aim over the next several months to spend particular uh, uh, allotments of time looking at or focusing on what will be important for us to engage with as the new year takes off. This is the first Sunday of the year, and like many of you, uh, I have also made resolutions not only personally, but together as a church. And it's my prayer that God will lead us and guide us in the fulfillment of these resolutions, these goals that we can establish not only for ourselves, but for God's glory in the world. 
Paul writes to the church in Ephesus because he has plans for the church that he began. We read about the beginning of the church in Ephesus in the book of Acts as Paul goes and establishes and plants and establishes elders. And as he leaves this church, he tells them with tears that he fears that his leaving will bring in wolves, that his leaving will lead to heresy. And we know that that indeed is what happens as he writes to Timothy, who he sends or he leaves in Ephesus to to correct some of this. Part of what Paul is doing through the book of Ephesus is helping to shape the culture of that church around deep theological truths so that their practice would be as focused on the gospel as possible. And so what better model for us to learn from than the book of Ephesus and the church here in Ephesus as we seek to model and reshape or reorient ourselves this year around the gospel, to focus on what's really important, to have, as it were, a clear vision this year about what the Lord would call us into as a church. I want to do this briefly because we'll be able to touch on many parts of the community that God has built in the church and here in Foundation over the next several weeks. But also what I'd like to do is spend time having a Q&A in each week, uh, a brief five or ten minutes if there's any questions or clarity that's needed. One of the things that we hope to do is not just hear God's word but become doers of God's word, as James teaches us. And the best way to do that is to take advantage fully of the gifts that God has given us in encouragement from one another through his word and the preparation I've put into preaching, but also as a plug on Wednesday evenings as we take this sermon, we take God's word, and we take the the scripture and the principles containing it deeper. So Paul is teaching the church in Ephesus that there are great things that God has done in them and has formed them as a community to express those great things to the world. Friends, we ought to be looking to the church in Ephesus as a model for what we may be this year. We talk about community a lot. In fact, if you just look around at the church's websites here in Fredericksburg, for instance, I did that this morning, and you did a word search for community or relationships, you see that that's one of the most often used words, of course, outside of Christ and God, hopefully, is community, and rightly so. The church is a community. It's a, it's a body of, of people who have been formed into not only relationship with God, but as Paul says to the, the church in Ephesus, relationship to one another. So we are rightly oriented around this idea of community. But in this day and age, we have idealized community. We have certain pictures of what that community or, or what those relationships ought to look like and feel like. And so we need to step back often and say, well, what is the biblical picture of community that Paul expresses here in the book of Ephesians that we see in the New Testament as God formed through Christ a a new person, a body, to himself? Too often churches and Christians talk about community the way the world talks about community, a place for us to belong as individuals, to, to fit in, have a space carved out for us to experience close relationships and friendships and those things are all well and good but too often I believe the way we talk about community mirrors the way the world talks about community and history has shown us we cannot as one author has put it we cannot outworld the world they will always be more attractive in the things that the world does well In many ways, the community that's promised by other institutions and other places will inherently be more attractive and compelling to outsiders than the community offered by most churches, especially if that community doesn't really have anything unique to offer. 
There was an article recently put out by the New York Times about this community in the CrossFit world. I don't know if you're familiar with CrossFit, but it's a, it's a health community. It's a, it's a workout community in which people come together and do specific exercises that look insane. But they do this to, to grow not only in relationship with one another, but to grow physically stronger and more capable. And that's all well and good, but what this article pointed out is that there is a deep sense of community among the people that are joined in certain CrossFit gyms and in CrossFit gyms across the world together, that there's a certain bond that they have that, that really trans, uh, transgresses or transpires among all other, transcends among all other boundaries. So much like we, we like to talk about in the church happening, we actually see happening in the world in communities like CrossFit, communities that meet around Fredericksburg, as you go to meet up and spend time with other moms or other coders or other what, what have you. Communities exist in the world. When I moved into my new neighborhood in, in September, it took two days before I was added to the Facebook chat group of several neighbors that are constantly speaking with one another. And I was brought into, against my will, the HOA to which I have to pay. And there are now obligations to the community that I have. And by God's grace, I will learn to embrace my new neighbors and learn to love them and be part of that community with them. But what I'm noticing is that there's very much a community and a friendship and relationships that exist in my neighborhood completely apart from the church. These are non-Christians who have a deep sense of community with one another simply because they happen to live in close proximity to one another. And if the church seeks to compete with the community offered by the world on the same standard the world offers then I think we're going to tire ourselves out. Because what's the other alternative? Well, we're going to have to keep doing things better and better. If the world is a performance, we have to get better at performing. If the world wants to give us the latest and greatest, we also have to be at the cutting edge of what's good. And so we will burn ourselves out and chasing this idea of community that the world has and the world offers, which many people will buy into, and we'll forget ultimately what God has intended the church to be the kind of community that is distinct and different from the communities of the world. So if our community doesn't offer what it alone can offer, then we will never be able to outworld the world. So in other words, Christianity doesn't have sole claim on this idea of community. We haven't cornered the market on community. It's not as if you want community, you have to come to the church. But the church's community, Christian community, should be distinct. It should be radically different from any community anywhere else. Just a quick skim through the New Testament leaves the unambiguous impression that the local church is exceedingly important in God's economy. The local church will make its gospel visible. It protects the vitality of our faith. It safeguards us from deception. It grows us in love. And consequently, a life that's centered around the local church, that's centered on the community of the local church, is significantly more likely than to be lived strategically in God's sight than a life where the local church languages as a peripheral detail. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his, his book, Life Together, a book I highly recommend if you are looking for books to read this year, he says that every human wish and dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. What does he say here? He says that we all have this idea of what community looks like because the world teaches us that community looks a certain way. And when we come into the church, 
and into the Christian community, and we project that idea of community from the world onto our community, we are going to kill it. He who loves, he continues, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. So we have to guard ourselves against what this ideal community looks like in our minds and pursue the reality of what the community looks like in the church through the New Testament. God's community is important. The local church is important. But what that community is needs to be told and retold over and over again. So let me give you two ideas of what community is and why it exists. First, community exists, we see, for the glory of God. Biblical community exists for the glory of God. That is, when we take a look at Ephesians chapter 1 all the way through Ephesians chapter 3, we see an argument building in Paul's mind. He says in the very beginning that God had predestined, that is called, is selected, he's, he set his grace and love particularly on individuals in order to redeem them through Christ. He says in verse 4, he has chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. Well, he predestines us for a particular purpose. It says, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Our election, our salvation, is not for our own good alone, but to the praise of God's glory. But this election and salvation is not alone either. He actually brings those who are called and predestined and saved and redeemed through the blood of Christ through his work into each other's lives. He brings each other together. This is why it says in chapter 1 that he gives thanks for, to God, in verse 15, for their love towards the saints, that God is making them one. He's bringing together all that God has done in their lives into each other's lives. So God calls and predestines and saves. And upon saving, he unites. In chapter 2, we see that God brings Christians together in order to demonstrate the work of Christ in their unity. So in verse 14 of chapter 2, we read that he himself, Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So the point in God's saving us and the point in Christ's death is in order to demonstrate in our community the unifying power of the gospel and the work of Christ to kill all hostility and sin that separates those whom God has saved. Paul, of course, is speaking here not just of individuals, different personality traits and types, but of Jew and Gentile who famously did not get along in the early church. He says God abolishes in Christ the dividing wall of hostility. He creates in himself one new man in the place of two. Well, Paul will say elsewhere, there is no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free. There's only one in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, he reconciles us both to God in one body through the cross. So God saves. He calls and he saves. He redeems. He brings into the, the fellowship of God. And then he brings those people together and calls them into a community by unifying them. 
And upon that unity that they enjoy in Christ and with one another, we see a structure beginning to form. A community that exists not of strangers and aliens, but of members of the household of God. Family, brothers and sisters. And he says that this, this is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The word of God, the deposit of truth of scripture being taught by the apostles and the prophets as the church is being formed. In verse 21, this whole structure is being joined together, growing into a holy temple unto the Lord. Well, what does a holy temple mean for the saints who are close to God? It means the dwelling presence of God. You are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he calls and predestines you. He saves you by giving you the gift of faith. He calls you into a community and unites you to others who have been called and redeemed and brought into this community. And then he calls for a sort of unity and a sort of community that looks like the demonstration and the triumph of the gospel over sin and hostility and difference and whatever it may be so that the, the grace of the gospel would be set forth before others and we would be built into this dwelling place of the magnification of God's presence in our gathering when we come together. He goes on to say then in verse 3, in chapter 3, that all of this serves a greater purpose. So when we ask the question, why does God predestine? Why does God save? Why does God bring people together? Why does God unite those people and form them and knit them together in the sort of community and structure that we call the church today? He goes on to tell us in verse 10, he does all this so that for the purpose of, in chapter 3, through the church, through this, this new building, this new temple of God, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose that is realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is Paul building the argument to say? He says the church exists the community of God, of Christians who have been called together and united in Christ and with one another exists for God's glory alone. He tells us that the thing that we are to display to the world and to the heavenly places is this manifold wisdom of God. What is the manifold wisdom of God? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the wisdom of God is Christ himself. It's the wisdom of God to send Christ in the lowly form of a humble servant to suffer and die which is backwards than all the world's thinking so God's wisdom is wiser than the wisdom of man where is the scribe where is the debater where is the one who is wise says Christ has used what is lowly in the world to humble the proud so Christ namely his triumph the 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 wisdom of God to send Christ to rule and have dominion over sin and darkness is the thing that we display in our coming together. That is the glory of God in the gospel. And so when we think about our church and what the church and the community of the church exists for, it is for the glory of God. Not your personal comfort, not your own edification, not your belonging to a particular community. It exists for the glory of God. So what do we focus on this year? In case we've forgotten, we must focus on our reason for existing. That is, the glory of God alone. The praise 
Paul says, of his glorious grace in the gospel and in Christ Jesus. We focus on the manifesting power of God and the spirit of the triumph of Christ over sin and death in our lives. To that end, community is something that sets well below what we're actually aiming for. We are not aiming for a community, but rather we aim for the glory of God and the praise of his glorious grace. And community then becomes the result of such an endeavor. Put it this way, community is the shadow, not the substance. Community is the shadow, not the substance. God is the substance. So what is it that we must feed on? What is that we must allow to nourish ourselves and excite our, our fruitfulness in the faith? It is not the good feeling we get when we gather together as much as we may like each other. Rather, it is the praising of God for what he's done in Christ for us. That is the central message of the gospel, and that is the reason community has been called together in the first place. Community is the shadow, but God is the substance, and therefore we must recognize if we are to be a church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets to manifest the, the, the wisdom of God, we must know that God himself is the substance. And therefore, the goal of community, the goal of our gathering, the goal of our praising and worship is our growth and maturity and unity around the glory of God in Christ. If you look ahead in chapter 4, Paul will go on to, to say that this, this sort of calling and gathering and unifying and displaying of the glory and power of God in Christ leads to the sort of body and display of the gospel that's manifested in wisdom and maturity and in love. He says, I therefore, prisoner, this is verse 1 of chapter 4, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's the gospel and the calling you read about in chapter 1. To, to walk worthy of a calling to which you've been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. But there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave men gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth. And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. He gave them to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So what's the purpose of all the work that Christ has done in accomplishing redemption for us and the Spirit applying that redemption to our life and God calling us together through faith into communities to equip us for the work of the ministry, the building of the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, he says, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be tossed like children to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by every human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Grow up into every way, into him who is ahead, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so that it builds itself up in love. So the goal of Christian community is to the praise of God's glorious grace in the gospel and results in the tightening of our bonds together in unity and the growth and maturity around the glory of God and Christ alone. 
So the first thing we need to recognize if we're to focus on what it means to glorify God is that we exist solely for the purpose of praising God in Christ. Community exists for the glory of God. But secondly, can we learn from these passages that community is built on, is produced from, and is then sustained by the gospel? Biblical community is built on, produced from, and sustained by the gospel. Not by the ingenuity or the creativity of different musicians or leaders. Not by the craftiness of sermons or the hard work we may put in each week. It is not built on, produced from, or sustained by the work of our hands in building something that we have come to love and adore. It is done only through the gospel. We see this over and over again in these first several chapters. All of the the prepositions of in and through and by and for that Paul uses describing how the church comes together because of the work of Christ means that all of this can only be sustained and built on the work of God in Christ alone. Go back to chapter 1 and just see a cursory glimpse of the Trinitarian perspective of the gospel in saving you and bringing you back together in a community. Again, start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which with he has blessed us in the beloved. And in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him in heaven and on earth. And verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 13, in him, in him you were also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. You see that the work of God happens through the gospel and the gospel alone. It doesn't happen because you, 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 you had a great relationship with somebody you seemed to like and because you wanted to be liked by them, you decided to join the church and become a Christian. Well, God certainly uses those things to bring us into communication and contact with the gospel, but those are not the things by which the church community is built and established. Rather, the contours of Christian community should be shaped by the character of Christ and the gospel alone. Well, consider the sort of contour of Christian community that we see here in Ephesus that Paul is saying the gospel ought to give shape to. The gospel itself demonstrates real humility, that Christ himself would take on the form of a servant, that he would leave the throne of heaven aside and come and dwell with man, be held captive and killed by man, laying his life down for the service of others. This requires real and genuine Humility, And so the contours of our own Christian community must be shaped by the humility of Christ. We also see in the gospel radical hospitality, that Christ emptied himself for the sake of others, that he gives himself away, he welcomes others who are not welcomed by society in order that he may give to them the truth of the message of the gospel. Real humidity, radical hospitality, and relentless love, Christ continues to pursue even to the point of death. By grace you have been saved through faith. This love that which we are to grow into as mature Christians is the one that is to be the shaping mechanism of our own community. When we consider what our community at foundation must look like, we must look 
to the gospel, to the contours that the gospel gives to us as gospel people. Humility, hospitality, and love. All of which, by the way, are done in service to God, in service to each other, and in service to the world. And all of which must be deeply rooted in God's word. So community is built on and produced from and sustained by the gospel. Not on any ingenuity or creativity we may come up with. It doesn't matter how much we like each other. If the gospel is not present, we do not have a biblical community. We have a country club. We may have some sort of gathering. But the moment that that similarity or commonality between us goes away, we will part ways. But the gospel remains. And so if we are to have a biblical community, it must be built on, produced from, and sustained by the gospel alone. So community exists for the glory of God and is built on and sustained by the gospel what do we do then? What do we learn about community and how do we achieve community? That's really the ultimate goal that I hope that we can learn from. There's four things that I want to do. Community happens when these four things happen. First, community happens when we are united in worship together. Community happens when we are united in worship together. When you get together and share a meal, when you get together and go see a movie, run, hang out. We may like to call something like that fellowship, although the jury's really out on whether that's true fellowship or not. But only worship together will produce the sort of lasting and deepness of community that the Bible describes the Christian church should have. Community happens when we are united and worship together. What worship does is remind us that there is something greater than ourselves. There is something beyond ourselves which we were coming together to acknowledge. And with the revelation of God's word, we know that that thing that's bigger than ourselves is the gospel. It's the purpose of God to redeem us through Christ. Our gathering together and our worshiping of Christ and God and the Holy Spirit means that we are deepening our bonds of community, not around the things that we share in common, not even around the difference that we have and we can celebrate but actually around the gospel which unites us in all things because we worship one Lord, one God, the Father over all. We're united in worship together. So when worship is our aim, community happens. But secondly, community happens when we are united in prayer together. We are united in prayer. This is why Paul often in his epistles is praying specifically for the people he's writing to. He knows the power of prayer to shape hearts around one another in the commonality of the gospel. So when we worship together and we pray together, our hearts are knitted together because what do we pray for? Again, we pray for something bigger than ourselves. We pray for that God that is larger and beyond ourselves and our imagination at times to work on our behalf in ways that we can't. So we are united together in prayer for one another. Prayer for things that only God can do, for which only he can receive glory and credit. And when we see these things begin to happen, we are more apt to love and serve one another and build a deeper community around the gospel than around the things that we'll build for ourselves. It's easy to congratulate ourselves on the way we paint the walls or the outreach that we do about the number of people we can get to fill into a certain room. But when we come together and pray for what only God can do, and we see God answer that prayer, Community is genuinely built upon God's word. So we are united together in worship. We are united in prayer. Third, community happens when we are united in service together. 
when we serve and love one another in particular ways, when we come into membership particularly and we commit ourselves to each other's care and oversight, when we submit ourselves to each other's wisdom, when we give ourselves away for the sake of each other in membership here at the church, we are deepening our community. Now, that begins on paper. And over time, that begins to actually come into practice as we learn how to do that well. But real community happens when we come and are united in service together for one another. So when somebody needs help financially or otherwise, that we are quick to respond and, and give that help. When somebody is hurting or has lost a loved one, we are more than just a phone call away. We are weeping and mourning alongside that person. When there's difficulty, depression, hardship, prayer needed, friends, we are united in service together for one another. That is where community happens. And lastly, we're united. Community happens when we are united on mission together. Ask anyone who has served overseas uh, in, the, in the military in any sort of ways, certainly if they come under sort of a fire. The sort of bond that is created just between two people because bullets are flying past them. How much more then when we serve the ultimate mission of God and his word and his kingdom advancement, should we be united together? Just the strategic work of planning logistically a trip to Iceland, I think brought the five of us closer together in a way that maybe wouldn't have happened if we just hung out. The work that we do at First Friday spends time together on mission for something greater than ourselves creates bonds that wouldn't create, happen if we just had dinner or saw a movie. When we are united on mission together, when we see that the work of the church is to glorify God by making disciples that glorify God, and we together pursue that goal, and we're focused on that alone, community then will be the result. So community happens when we're united together in worship. It happens when we're united in prayer together. It happens when we're united in service together, and it happens when we're united on mission together. So let me give you three things with which we conclude, and then I'll take some questions. First is this. Community isn't something that you'll come to. It's something that you are, and it's something that you do. Community isn't something you come to, that you consume. It's something that you are, and it's something that you do. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in Life Together that Christian brotherhood is not an ideal with which, which, which we must realize. It is rather a reality already created by God in Christ in which we may participate. You see the subtle difference there? It's not something that we're coming to create and something that we will that we'll take for ourselves, but rather it's a reality established by God in Christ in which we enter into by virtue of faith. And so we don't come into a community. There's not a, there's not a sign that says our community is open for everybody. Our community is built and established by God by those who are in faith united to Christ. It's not something you come to, but something you are. If you are in Christ this morning, you are a community. A community isn't just something that you come to, it's something you are, and it's something that you do. The work of maturity, service, and love towards one another, our mission with each other, unites us as a community of faith. But also, community is the result of God's work. It is not the precursor to it. This is important. As much as we talk about community, we can begin to romance that community exists before faith does. That you can belong here without actually being a part of the community of faith. But this would be putting the cart before the horse, as it were. Community is the result of God's work, not the precursor to it. God doesn't work first and then, 
uh, uh, God doesn't create a community only to work in it, but actually works in our lives and creates a community from that work. Now, for those who are in the community, we see that those things can happen sort of cyclically, that our community is strengthened, our bonds are strengthened with one another as we are worked on by God. But how do we enter that community? Not by being part of that community first, and then we enter that community. Logically, that makes no sense. God saves us, draws us into that community through his work. Before we are part of the community, God works in our hearts. So community is the result of God's work. It's not the precursor to it. Friends, if you want community, you must know that you enter in community through faith, through the door of praising the glory of God and the work of Christ alone. You cannot have community, biblical Christian community, without the work of God. So community is something that you are, something that you do. It's the result of God's work, not the precursor to it. And lastly, community is the power of God's evangelistic work in the local church. Our church, our community, is the power of God's evangelistic work in the local church. God's strategy for reaching the nations is the local church. And the local church's community, the display of the glory of God, its unity or its disunity will be the witness of the gospel in Fredericksburg. Believe it or not, friends, people look at the church, they come, they can tell, they'll look around. Maybe God is working in their hearts. If they come into a church where there is no unity, they come into a church where the display of the power of God's glory in Christ is not full on display, but rather backbiting, slandering. There are people who are not recognizing their gifts, they're helping and serving one another. There is no witness of the gospel, and then there is no power to be saved. The power of God's work in evangelism is in the local church's community. So what are we to do? We are to strategize and focus on what God will do through a community-like foundation if our first and foremost focus is the praise of God's glory. Let me end again with just another quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that may any day be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. And therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. See, God has saved us and called us into a community, an amazing gift that we have. And this community is shaped by the gospel, grounded and rooted in the gospel, without which we would not grow, we could not give witness to the gospel as God intends. So friends, would we take the words here of Bonhoeffer and apply them to our life? Would we see that the the admonition and the exhortation of Paul to the church in Ephesus to live in a community that's built, shaped by, and grounded in the gospel that exists for the glory of God alone, to the praise of his glorious grace, when we are worshiping, praying, serving, and on mission together, promotes the unity of the church for the display of God's glory, not only to this world, but to the heavenly places, the whole cosmic realm that knows that God is glorious and worthy of praise. That's the sort of biblical community we aim to see in the church this year. Would you pray? Father, thank you for this gift of community. Forgive us of our neglect of it, neglect of the stewardship of our friends and our family, of our brothers and sisters. And though you have saved us and called us into this community and for this season has placed us here in this local church, would you help us see where we we are to serve and love and be on mission with one another? 
Would you help us this year to be serious about focusing on the praise of your grace in the gospel through the work of community? Not by the work of our hands, not by our own craftiness, but through the work of grace in our lives as we are shaped the gospel, matured and grown into deep and abiding love for your word, for one another, and above all, for the name of Christ. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.